Following uh, worship last week, my uh, wife asked why I have chosen an Easter theme to preach on these final weeks that I'm with you. It's a fair question. My wife always asks fair questions. Well, I've done so because having focused last fall on Joseph and Judah's story, I didn't want to fail to focus on the most important story in all of history, the story of Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, reign, and promised return. So please look with me again in your Bibles at Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, and we're going to look this morning at verses 44 through 49, but first let's pray. So Father, as we come to your word, we ask that the Holy Spirit who inspired the apostle as he wrote, that that apostle would now, that that spirit would now illuminate our minds and our hearts, that we might hear, understand, Appreciate the significance of what we're told here. May it change us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Luke 23 and verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Of course, the sixth hour would have been six hours after sunrise, the ninth hour nine hours after sunrise, so we're talking between noon and three o'clock. And while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breast. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a a distance watching these things. Now, having read those scriptures for you, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. I have you turn there because here put into the mouth of Jesus are the words of Psalm 40. These are the words that Jesus speaks coming from the 40th Psalm. He says, sacrifice and offering you haven't desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And behold, I have come to do your will, O God. The Psalm 40 is written by David thousand years before Jesus came. And clearly, 
Clearly, we, we know from the example of his life that David knew that sacrifices and offerings are important. I mean, he, he offered up both to the Lord on, on countless occasions. But what David more deeply understands is that the shedding of the blood of an animal in sacrifice to the Lord, that was a gracious gift. It was a gracious gift from God because the shedding of the blood of that animal symbolically covers the sins of the people. But David knows, as important as that symbol is, those sacrifices and offerings may be, David knows that what God wants is to see reflected in his people the evidence of that grace at work in their lives. I mean, one negative example in relationship to, to sacrifices and offerings, you'll remember that Saul's sacrifice was rejected by the Lord. And why? Because Saul's heart was not right before the Lord. And you remember the prophet, the judge Samuel, telling Saul bluntly, to obey is better than sacrifice. And then, you'll remember, the Lord, having rejected Saul, he then tells Samuel to anoint this young lad named David to be the next king of Israel. And why? Why David? What does God say? God says this is David's qualification. He has a heart after me. The Old Testament sacrifices, crucially important, crucially significant. It, it's well worth our time to understand those sacrifices and offerings. But they were but shadows. They were but shadows anticipating the day when the final sacrifice for sin will be offered up by the one whose heart is perfectly committed to doing the Father's will. Now, David's words in Psalm 40 were, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And those words written by David a thousand years earlier, they are now being completely fulfilled here in Luke chapter 23 as Jesus offers up his body as the final and perfect sacrifice, the final, not the symbol, but the final and perfect sacrifice for sin. Not the symbol, but the reality. Now, your Bible's there in Hebrews. Look at Hebrews 9.14. Hebrews 9.14. Here you're told. You're told the gospel. Here you're told that the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifies your consciences, purifies them once and for all time, 
purifies them from dead works. Why? So that you might serve the living God. It's important to hear. Jesus dies to purify your consciences from the stain of sin, but take note, he doesn't die simply to save you in the future from eternal damnation, though praise God he will. He dies so that you might now serve the living God by whom and for whom you were created. You're created to serve him. But even as we confess this morning, the natural inclination of sons of Adam and daughters of Eve is to ignore him, to go our own way, to do our own thing with little concern for who he is or for how he would have us to live, to so live. To live in that manner is to live in rebellion against the one by whom and for whom you were made. Jesus tells you plainly that the wages of such a life, of such sin, <clears throat> is death. It's death both now and forevermore. To so live just slowly but surely, it just sucks the life out of those who rebel against their maker. But, but, but by God's grace, you come to understand who you are, who you are, a man or a woman created by him and for him, and by God's grace, you come to know whose you are, that you belong, body and soul, to your creator, body and soul, you belong to your creator. And therefore, only by grace in him is to be found life abundant and life eternal. By God's grace, you come to understand and believe that here in Luke 23, Jesus is graciously and mercifully and, and lovingly offering up his body a body you have prepared for me. He's offering up his body to pay the penalty for your rebellious attitudes and behaviors. He dies. He dies. So by grace, through faith in him, you might know he has both purified you and that he even now empowers you to do the good works that he's prepared in advance for you to do. Look at Luke 23, verses 44 through 49. <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> oh, yeah. Jesus has been hanging on the cross since 9 o'clock, 9 in the morning. Now it's high noon. And suddenly the sun is hidden, and for three hours the land is shrouded in darkness. 
Just as Jesus foretold, he said, this will be the hour when darkness reigns. Now, perhaps, perhaps what you, you know what it is to be frightened by a storm like, like the tornadoes that several years ago ripped through our communities. Well, try to imagine the terror of those standing there as at high noon, day becomes night. The sky darkens. The wind is howling. The lightning is flashing. The thunder is rolling. I have to wonder if all of that engendered fear in those who were standing there. Fear, perhaps even, of God. Perhaps even of God's judgment. Now listen to me carefully because some of you may not quite catch this. I want you to understand that as all of this takes place, Jesus is terrified. He's terrified. I know that's hard. Hard to imagine. He's terrified because he's wrapped in the rags of your sin. And as the sin bearer, he finds himself forsaken by God the Father. In Matthew's gospel, you hear him cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father forsakes God, the Son, can there be anything more terrifying than that? Well, why? Because he's wrapped in the rags of your sins. Because he's suffering the penalty your sins have merited. Just try to imagine. Try, try to imagine the ones you love best turning their back on you in your hour of greatest need, forsaking you, de deserting you when you need them the most. For a moment in time, one horrible, glorious moment in time, the father turns his back upon the son. Not because of anything Jesus has done, but because of what we have done. He's bearing our sins. He's paying the penalty for our transgressions, for our rebellious attitudes and behaviors. It's a, it's a terrifying moment. Jesus is momentarily forsaken by God the Father because he is horribly stained with your sins. But now note, now note, as the sky grows dark and the storm rages, suddenly the curtain of the temple tears from top to bottom. Well, that curtain hid the people from the Holy of Holies where God symbolically dwelt. The people were not allowed 
to, to, do, to part that curtain. They weren't allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. They weren't allowed to look into the Holy of Holies. They weren't allowed to do any of that upon pain of death. Only once a year. Once a year prior to the Babylonian invasion, the high priest, on the Day of Atonement, he parted that curtain. He entered the Holy of Holies. And he would then symbolically make atonement for the sins of the people by pouring out the blood of a sacrificial animal upon the mercy seat atop the Ark of the Covenant. But again, like all, like all Old Testament sacrifices, that was not the final and perfect sacrifice for sin. How do you know that? Because it was repeated. Year after year, decade after decade, century after century. Like all Old Testament sacrifices, it was but a shadow anticipating the reality of the day when the spotless Lamb of God, when Jesus would offer up the final and perfect sacrifice for the sins of his people. But now, now the veil is ripped in two. The way into the holy of holies, the presence of God, it stands open. <laughs> this is how my mind works. I've always wondered... Which of the priests dared to approach close enough to repair that torn curtain? <laughs> they would have have to, uh, they would have done so, they would have have to have done so with fear and trembling. They did not yet understand what it meant for that veil to be now torn in two. But I also wonder if some of those assigned the duty of repairing that veil, I wonder if some of them, by God's grace, came to understand and were numbered among the priests who we are told, the priests who we are told in Acts 6, 7, became obedient to the faith. I wonder. We can find out together in glory, okay? But the veil's torn in two. What does that mean? It means that you, by grace through faith in Jesus as Savior, Lord, and King, may enter into the Lord's presence. This is what Paul tells you. In Romans 5.1, Paul says, having been justified by faith, you have peace with God through your Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, you have obtained access by faith into this grace in which you now stand. Stand boldly before the Lord. Stand in the holy of holies. Stand in the presence of God. You know what we're doing here? Listen to what you're told. Just listen. You might want to mark the reference, but just listen. Hebrews 
10:19 and following. Listen. This is what we're told. Brothers and sisters, brothers, since we have confidence, confidence to enter the holy place, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, why? By the blood of Jesus. And what is the blood of Jesus? Listen to the, what the writer of Hebrews said. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest, Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near, let us enter the holy of holies, let us stand in the presence of God, and let us do so. Let us do so with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, knowing our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. The blood, what's on your conscience? What's nagging at you? What just rips at you? I can't tell you the number of times I sit and moan because something is nagging at me. Something is ripping at me. Some reality of sin is just overwhelming me. Well, you can have the full assurance of faith that because of the shed blood of Jesus, your consciences are sprinkled clean. Clean. I've got a clean conscience. It doesn't always feel that way. And that's good. Because that's the Lord drawing me back to himself. But by his sprinkled blood, as far as the court of heaven is concerned, you have, your hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And your body has been washed with pure water. So believer, welcome. Because I know you're sitting, but even as you sit, you are standing in the Holy of Holies. You were standing in the presence of God. In Hebrews 12 and verses 22 and following, you're told that as you gather in worship, do you know where you are? What the book of Hebrews says? It says you gather in worship atop Mount Zion, where the temple was located. You stand atop Mount Zion. You stand in the heavenly Jerusalem because the writer of Hebrews says, this is who you are. You are the assembly of the firstborn, those most highly privileged by the Father. You are the assembly of the firstborn and you now stand before God. Stand, that's bold. Stand before God. Why? Writer of Hebrews says, because of the shed blood of Jesus. 
you understand that's who you are as you gather here? Do you understand this is where you are? You're in the holy of holies. I can't even, I can't get it. If you're saying, I'm not sure I can get a handle on that, let, let me assure you, I can't get a handle on that. But that's where you are. In the holy of holies. So for three days the sun darkens, the curtain tears in two. And now in Luke 23, verses 46, Jesus cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You realize that Jesus is again quoting the Psalms. He's quoting Psalm 31, another Psalm of David. I don't know what David's circumstances might have been. But interestingly, in Psalm 31, verse 13, David cries out to the Lord, I hear the whispering of many terror on every side as they scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. I mean, David wrote those words a thousand years before Jesus. And in verse 5, in the midst of his personal painful circumstances, David turns to the Lord, and this is his prayer. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, it's Jesus who speaks those words. And then he breathes his last. And then he dies. His agony ends. The penalty for sin is paid. In John's gospel, he cries out, it is finished. The justice of God, which demands that the penalty for sin be death. God's justice has now been propitiated, has been satisfied. The love of God has been displayed For greater love has no man than this, that he what? That he lay, come on, that he lay down his life for his friends. I know you're Presbyterian, but you can join in here every now and then, okay? All right. All right. Wonderful stuff. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me. We're singing that, aren't we? Yes, next. Well, the sun darkens and the curtain tears in two and Jesus cries out and he dies. And now you're told in Luke 23, verse 47, that a Roman centurion, having witnessed all that's transpired, praises God and he testifies, certainly this man was innocent. And and Matthew tells you of another soldier saying, truly this was the son of God. Now, I don't know. I don't know if those declarations are declarations of saving faith, but, but clearly the storm and all that's happened provokes in these soldiers a sense of overwhelming awe. Luke 23, 48, you see others who've come to watch the spectacle. We, we know John was there. We don't really know about the other disciples, but there's a mob there. Uh, a mob has come 
to watch the spectacle, you know, just like in a Western movie when the mob gathers to see the hanging. And perhaps some of them, perhaps some in that mob had earlier demanded Jesus' crucifixion. I, I certainly assume most of them were not followers of Jesus because of all the hissing and all of the insults and all the slurs being thrown upon Jesus. But something happens to these people. Luke tells you they went away beating their breasts. As people in the Middle East still do today as an expression of grief. You remember the tax collector who beat his breast? The tax collector beating his breast, crying out to God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Jesus said that tax collector went home justified before God. I mean, is Luke, is he showing you men and women in whom the spirit of God has begun to work? I don't think that's totally unthinkable. If you'll remember, 50 days later, Peter will preach a great sermon. And how many will be added to the church? Who knows? How many? Come on. Three, thank you. Woo! 3,000. After hearing Peter preach, they turned to the Lord in obedient faith. I hope that's some of these people beating their breast as they walk away from the cross. Clearly, they're profoundly impacted by all they've seen and heard during the last three hours. Now, finally, in Luke 23, verse 49, you see... Followers of Jesus, including a group of women. In quiet tones, Luke describes them as standing at a distance, watching all that has taken place. With their hearts broken, confused, frightened. You can only imagine. You know from John's gospel that one of those women was Jesus' mother, Mary. Do you remember this? 33 years earlier, the old man Simeon told Mary a day would come when a sword would pierce her soul. Now, as you learn in the other Gospels, a spear pierces Jesus' side. So Mary's heart is pierced. The sun darkens, the veil is ripped in two. Roman soldiers speak the truth. People beat their breast. Those who know and love Jesus, they watch quietly from a distance. So my dear friends, this is the beginning of the story. The story that is the central moment of all human history because here is Jesus, your creator, your king, your savior, suffering and dying. He dies so you might live. Live the life you were created to live. A life of loving service to your Lord and in his name to one another. So I close with this reminder. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Teach us these profound truths. 
Lord, may our hearts be stirred. May we recognize. May our eyes be open to see the truth here set before us. God become flesh wrapped in our sins, dying to pay the penalty of death for our transgressions. Amazing love. Amazing love. And all God's people said, Amen.